Romans chapter 1, we'll read from verse 1 down to verse 7 and then ask the Lord to bless our time this evening. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. With the scriptures open before us, let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we come now to this time of the preaching of thy word, and we pray, Lord, that the entrance of thy word would give us light, that thou wilt speak to us. We believe that Christ is still ruling and reigning over the affairs of men and over his church. Father, tonight we claim that promise that where two or three are gathered in thy name, that Christ would be in the midst. And so, Father, we do pray that we will know a special sense of thy presence and that the truth of the gospel would come with freshness to our souls. Save us, Lord, from the lethargy and the coldness that uh, so often creeps in, that we just look to this service as another message that uh, we have to listen to and then go uh, forth into the world for the, another, another week. Save us from that dryness and that approach to hearing the word. We pray that there would be freshness in the word, that it would be fresh manna for our souls tonight, and that our souls would be blessed as we see something of Christ and see the need that we have to claim the promises and to rest upon uh, what thou hast given to us as gospel promises. Lord, help us tonight to look beyond ourselves and to look beyond our circumstances and to see Christ in all of his glory. So Lord, be with us and bless us tonight for Jesus' sake. Amen. As I mentioned this morning, the first part of the outline that we're going to consider over the next times that I'm going to be preaching here, the first part is in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, where we've entitled it the introduction or the exalting of the gospel, the lifting up of the gospel, the desire that Paul had at the very beginning of his book that he was writing to the Romans. He had a desire to not uh, beat around the bush. He had a desire to not uh, be unclear in what his purpose was in writing to them and what his ministry was before the Lord. His ministry, his purpose in writing to them is to exalt the message of the gospel, which is exalting the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we find that even in these introductory remarks uh, even before the apostle gets into uh, the relationship that he has with the Romans which he begins in verse 8 where he thanks the Lord for their testimony and he begins to use the personal pronoun so often that he thanks the Lord and he does this and he does that these are the, the very basic introductory statements as to who he was and what he was about and you'll find in the first few words that he mentions. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. This book is an exposition of the gospel. 
I mentioned earlier, Matthew Poole, uh, in so many words, said that when we want to explain the gospel and show from the scripture what the gospel is, we go to Romans and we go to Galatians. But especially the principal book is the book of Romans. To, to, to go to the scripture to support our doctrine concerning what the gospel is and why sinners need Christ, we go to Romans. So it's an important book. It's a very important book. And anytime you, uh, anytime you put any kind of a message or a statement or a desire to witness uh, and you're trying to point sinners to Christ, you will be quoting, most likely, from this book. Because it, it is the principal place where the gospel is preached. And so I want to tonight just deal with the introduction, the exalting of the gospel, and what Paul says in these first few verses about the gospel that will somewhat set the stage. Uh, he goes on in this chapter, really the first half of the book, or of the chapter, chapter 1, is an introduction uh, as I said, from verse 8 down to verse 16, it's a little bit more personal. But these are simple statements as to who he was and what he was about. And yet, even in these verses, as you find so often in the writings of the Apostle Paul, there are, there are tremendous doctrinal statements that he gives right at the very beginning. You think of the, the book of Ephesians, where before he gets into what issues the church was dealing with, he makes the great in Christ statements in Ephesians chapter 1, and all the things and all the blessings that we have been, been given by the Father by virtue of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, going all the way back to our election, all the way uh, into our experience and the Spirit of God that, that we've been given by virtue of our union with Christ. This is not uncommon for Paul to begin his books by making some, some powerful doctrinal statements. I, I think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, some of, the, some of the greatest verses that describe the person and the nature of Jesus Christ, the two natures and the person of Christ, are found in the early verses of the book of Hebrews, being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, uh, upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down. These are just massive verses that would require... Uh, a sermon in, for each of those phrases. And yet it's almost just given at the very beginning. This is what we're preaching. This is who we're preaching. And these massive doctrinal statements. It's, it's not any different when you begin the book of Romans. Before he even gets personal with them. Paul's making these, these statements that have some massive implications. And definitely set the stage for those to whom he's writing here in Rome. To understand why he's writing. He's definitely writing to them about the gospel, the message of the gospel. So there's three things I want to see from these, these early verses in the book that show Paul's desire to exalt the gospel, the message of the gospel. The first thing we see from this section is the sending of the gospel, the sending of the gospel. And in the early verses, you find three uh, ideas here that show uh, not just that the gospel was something that is being preached by the Apostle Paul and others in his day, but this is the same message, the message of hope, the message of forgiveness, the message of redemption. It's the same message that's been preached, not just uh, in his day, but all the way back ever since man fell into sin. The sending of the gospel. The first thing you see is that the gospel is promised. 
It's a promise. You see that at the very beginning. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. There's the mention of the gospel, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Promised. I tell my, my boys, you know, they're at the age where they're, they're memorizing, right? They memorize catechism. They memorize Bible verses. But a lot of times it's hard for the young mind. It's easy for the young mind to memorize, the older you get, the harder it is to memorize. But the older that you get, the easier it is to put massive subjects together and see how they work together. It's just part of having a more mature mind. The children can memorize, but they don't see how this verse fits into the, to the big scheme of things. And I, I'm trying to explain to my kids, and it's not uncommon for, for kids that are raised under the gospel to often... For instance, pray that the Lord would continue to save them. One of my boys prayed that the other night, claiming the promises and, and, and just saying, Lord, save me. And he already made a profession of faith, and he already knows he's trusting in the promises. But it's hard for them. They know how important it is to seek the Lord for salvation. But they, they don't quite see how that the promises, when you trust in the promises and come to Christ by faith, the transaction's done. And so sometimes it's hard for them to, to connect things. And in the Old Testament, the language that is used is not as clear as it is in the New Testament. That's obvious from the scriptures. We're told that the Old Testament scriptures are types and shadows, right? You can, you can see objects better by the use of shadows, but if all you're looking at is the shadow... It's hard to make out oftentimes. You can tell maybe that there's a person or you can tell it's an image, but you can't really tell much more than that. Well, the Old Testament scriptures in their declaration of the gospel are referred to as types and shadows. They were, they were foreshadowing the substance, the very thing that casts the shadow. And that's why so many people who memorized the Old Testament still missed Christ. You look at the Pharisees, you look at the scribes, those men knew the scriptures. They memorized the word, and yet they missed Christ because they couldn't see him. He was, he was hidden from their view. The gospel is there in the Old Testament, but the, the language that's used is somewhat different. You come to the New Testament, and this is why when we form our doctrines... We often go to the, the, one of the, one of the ways that we formulate doctrine, one of the, the methods that we use is you always go to the clear passages and you interpret the unclear in light of the clear. For instance, uh, we don't go to the book of Ezekiel to support justification. We don't go to one of the minor prophets to support the working of the Spirit. There are clear sections in Paul's epistles where he outlines what the work of the Spirit is. And so that's one of the disciplines of interpreting Scripture. You always interpret the unclear in light of the clear. And so it's easier for us, now that we have the clear of the New Testament, New Testament to be able to go back and see the fulfillment of scripture, the fulfillment of prophecy, and, and all of those things that were types and figures. We have the book of Hebrews that explain those things to us. But for, for children and for those that are just have just come to Christ, sometimes it's hard to see the gospel in the Old Testament. I tell those people uh, when I'm explaining to them, one of the, the gospel words 
of the Old Testament. You won't find the word gospel in the Old Testament. But the gospel's there. Well, if you say the, if you say the gospel's in the Old Testament, then, then where can I see it? One of the greatest revelations of the gospel, one of the great demonstrations of the gospel in the Old Testament is the, through the word, the promise. Promise. What God promises in the Old Testament is a gospel word. The promises that he gives. And, and you know that because the New Testament sections that deal with the heart of the gospel are always talking about the Old Testament saints trusting in the promise. Trusting in the promise. I say that one of, one of the great sections of the scriptures where uh, the Lord covenants with his people is the, is the book of Deuteronomy. Where the Lord is saying, if you do this, I will be your God. You will be my people. It's the book of the covenant. <clears throat> and you'll find, and we don't have time to turn to all these verses, but just in that book alone, the word promise occurs over and over and over again. The Lord does not want his people to view their relationship that they have with him apart from the promise. The promises of God are essential when you're dealing with the message of the gospel. And that's why Paul mentions it here, right at the end of verse 1, he says, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised. You cannot view the gospel in the Old Testament apart from the promises. It's the heart and soul of the, the, the message of the coming Redeemer. The Lord has covenanted with his people. He has promised to be their God. And it's on the basis of the work of Christ. Like I said, you won't, you won't come to a section where you find the word gospel. In very few sections you find the word faith. It's there. It's actually quoted, the just shall live by faith from the Old Testament. So it is there, but it's much more common in the New Testament. But the promises, you may not even see the word promise, but what's going on in that verse is a promise. The Lord says, I am going to do this. You find it all over in the Old Testament. You think back when the Lord appeared to Abraham. And Abraham said, you know, I, I don't have an heir. I don't have a son. The only one I've got in my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And the Lord says, look to the heavens. Look at the stars. See how many stars there are? So shall thy seed be. The Lord promised that his seed would be like the stars of heaven. And it says, the next verse says, Abraham believed. He believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. That verse is quoted in Romans chapter 4. He believed in the Lord is imputed to him for righteousness. Romans chapter 4 is dealing with justification. What's taking place in Genesis chapter 15? Abraham came to Christ. He put his trust in the gospel promise. We know that because at the end of Romans chapter 4, Paul tells us it wasn't just written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. But to us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Same God, same Savior, same trust, same faith. The language is different. The Lord promised something to Abraham. Abraham believed the promise. He believed the gospel. And so I say it's not by coincidence that the first mention in the first verse of the book of Romans where you find the word gospel is immediately followed by which he had promised. The promise is the gospel key word of the Old Testament. You think later in the book of Exodus, when 
Moses had failed. He, he slew the Egyptian. He stuffed him in the sand. The whole thing blows up and he flees. Right? And he goes out into the wilderness, finds Jethro, and he's done. Right? I'm just going to be a shepherd. The Lord appears to him in the burning bush. And what does he do? He quotes his promise. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The ground on which you stand is holy. Put off your feet, the shoes from off your feet. And he begins to go over the promises that he made to the forefathers. It's the same promise. It's the same gospel. You know that because Moses in Exodus or in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than that of Egypt. You don't find that in the Old Testament account. Paul tells us the reason why Moses was willing to stand with the people of God and to do the Lord's work was because he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches. So the promises that God made to Moses and the confidence that Moses had in the Lord was all connected to the gospel promise. That's why I say if, if you're looking for clear references to the gospel in the Old Testament, you're not going to find it. But you'll find the same themes that you find in the New Testament all over the place in the Old Testament. And you'll even find quotations that reference the faith that they had in Christ based upon the promises and the confidence they had in the promise that was given to them. So I say that the, the sending out of the gospel, it has its roots in the promise. The Lord has promised these things to us. And you'll actually find them referred to in the New Testament as well. It's not just like, it's not just that, that the term is dropped when you get to the New Testament. The word promise and the promises of the Lord are, are mentioned in the New Testament. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, if you have your, your Bible. Hebrews chapter 10. Right before the great, the great uh, faith chapter. Right? The, the confidence that we have in these references of the Old Testament saints exercising faith. What are they exercising faith in? Something that was said, something that was told them, they're all promises. You go, you find these people that are mentioned here and go back to the Old Testament reference. They're all trusting in the promise. But in, in Hebrews chapter 10, actually you can read verse 35, cast not away therefore your confidence which hath great recompense of reward, for ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. It's the same confidence that Abraham had. The promise that he would be given the land, that his seed would be given the land, that he would inherit the earth. It wasn't just that promised land over in, in the Middle East. Abraham's confidence was that he would inherit the earth. I actually think that is... The promise that Peter refers to in 2 Peter chapter 3, where he says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth. Where's that promise? Do you have a question? Ask yourself. The, where, it says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth. I think it's the, it's the original promise that was given to Abraham. Because we're told in, in Romans chapter 4 that the promise that he should be the, the heir, the, that he should inherit the earth, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham's, the promise was made to Abraham that he would inherit, inherit the land was viewed by Abraham as that he would inherit the world. And I think that's the, that's the promise that's mentioned. Otherwise, you have to show me where the new heavens and the new earth and that we would inherit that, where that promise is given. Because I've looked for it, I can't find it. But yet, Abraham was told, you will be given the land. And we're told in the New Testament, he didn't just view that as that parcel. He viewed that as the whole 
the whole world, the whole earth. But the promise. And here we're told, for you have need after that, after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Right? The promise, the mention of the promise. And you go into Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, this is, now we're dealing with Abraham. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. It's interesting that if that was the land that he felt that was only restricted to that land, why did he dwell in tents? If that was his land and that he was going to inherit it and it was that section, why didn't he build something permanent? Because the, the promise hadn't been fulfilled yet. Now he was brought into the land and from that outward perspective, Israel was brought in. But, but Abraham saw it as a much bigger promise that the promise is actually given to Christ. And he believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. And he has the, the expectation and the prospect of the same gospel promises that we have. What am I looking forward to? I'm looking forward to the day when Christ will return and he will create a new heavens and a new earth. Read Romans chapter 8. We'll get to that in our study. Where the, the whole creation as it exists right now is groaning and travailing Waiting for the, the day in which the sons of God will be manifested. Waiting for the day when Christ is going to return. It's going to be purged. It's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. It's the same desire that Abraham had. It's the same gospel. It's the same promises. You'll find these references over and over later on in this chapter, verse 39. These all, having obtained a good report through, play, through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. The, the, the unity that we have with the brethren from the Old Testament, all waiting for this, this great fulfillment of the gospel promise. If, if, if you can read that, if you can read those two verses... <clears throat> these all having obtained a good report through faith received not the promise God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect if you can read those verses and not see that it's the same hope the same trust the same promise that both the Old Testament and New Testament saints are going to enjoy I don't know how else Paul could have written it it's the message of the gospel the gospel that we preach it's based upon the promises the Lord engaging himself through covenant promise to bless his people. That's, that's, that's important for us. I, t I try to tell my kids to, to claim some promise. Get into the habit of reading the scriptures looking for promises. P Spurgeon has that checkbook of faith. It's really good. It's just day, you know, every day he has a new promise that... He then comments upon, and it's a, it's a good way. If you have a hard time just reading sections of Scripture every day, if you want something that is, is, is somewhat more established, that's always a good way to start your day, to get a promise that the Lord has given in His Word, to get that into your mind and into your heart. The checkbook of faith, it's, they're, they're good for us to take to the, to the bank, as it were, and to cash in, the Lord, take the Lord at His Word. The promise is at the heart of the gospel. So the sending out of the gospel has in its foundation uh, the promises of the Lord. But then it's not just promised, it's also preached. It's also preached, and not just what Paul was doing, but there were forerunners to the Apostle Paul. Because we read in chapter 2, which he had promised afore by his prophets. By his prophets. Not just the men who wrote the 
the section of the word of God that we're referring to as, as the prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and the minor prophets. We all know that they were prophets. You have men, some of the great figures of the Old Testament that were prophets, men who uh, aren't mentioned very often at all, like Micaiah, uh, sent by God oftentimes to preach one message before they were either executed or you never hear from them again. But yet God raising up men all through the Old Testament to prophesy concerning the message of the gospel. Preached. They preached. Moses preached. Actually, in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses says that the Lord your God was going to raise up a prophet unto you from among your brethren like unto me. He's talking about Christ. Unto him shall ye hearken. But the obvious reference is that Moses was a prophet. He preached. Probably one of the, the greatest preachers in, in, in Israel's history. But yet you don't think of him as a priest. You think of him more as a leader or the guide through the wilderness. But, uh, or as a prophet, I should say. You don't think of him as a prophet in, in the Old Testament. You think of him as a leader. But yet he is referred to as a prophet. He calls himself a prophet. Israel viewed him as a prophet. So not just those periods of time where you have Elijah or Jonah and these other men who were given a word from the Lord, Isaiah. How often he says, the word of the Lord came unto Isaiah, the word of the Lord came. You find this all through the scriptures, the word of the Lord coming. And what's the, what's the essence? What's the, the message of the word of the Lord? It may have a, a, a personal or a, a, uh, uh, an immediate application, but the broad reason why the lord sends prophets is to show something concerning christ every book in the old testament scriptures and obviously in the new testament where we have the clear doctrines but even in the old testament every book has something concerning christ and the gospel every book beginning at moses and all the prophets Christ expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke chapter 24. The prophets preached. And here we're told it's promised, but it's also been preached because of the prophets that were raised up. But then it was also promoted. It was, it was thrust forth as the message of focus because we're told it wasn't just that it was promised and that it was his prophets, but it was in the Holy Scriptures. It was in the Holy Scriptures. What is the theme of the Holy Scriptures? It's the gospel. Again, you may go to Esther. And the overriding theme of Esther is the deliverance of the Jews from wicked Haman and the plot that he had. And, and so there's a historical aspect to it. But there's also there's something going on in Esther that is overriding or stepping above that historical aspect and shows us something concerning Christ and his mediatorial work. And you can go to any book and, and preach Christ from that book. The scriptures are given to us to show us Christ. So it is, as we'll see when we get to Romans chapter 3, it is the greatest blessing that the Jews had. They had the promises, they had the truth, but all of that meant nothing if they didn't have the scriptures that they could read and draw these things out of. The Lord gave them the word of God. Paul says that very thing in Romans chapter 3. What advantage then hath the Jew? Much every way, chiefly unto them have been committed the oracles of God. 
So Paul was separated unto the gospel, which he, this is the gospel of God, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the sending out of the gospel. But then the apostle deals with, secondly, the subject of the gospel. Not just the sending of the gospel, but the subject of the gospel. The subject of the gospel is Christ. He is at the heart of the message of the gospel. Oftentimes you'll read the gospel being described that way. The gospel of Jesus Christ or the gospel of Christ. And here we're told not just that the gospel is sent out, but what is the message? Paul says in verse 3, concerning, now he's explaining what this message of the gospel is. He just established the fact that the gospel is being preached, it's been promised, it's in the scriptures. What is it? Okay, he's just pretty much said that this is what he's doing, this is where it's found. What is it that he's saying? Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Some of these, like I said, some of these statements that Paul makes at the beginning of the book, they, they require, to deal with them properly, they require a great deal of digging and uh, a great deal of study for each one of these phrases. And I, I feel like in order to accomplish what my goal is here to give you the outline of Romans I can't really take the time to get into each one of these statements, but we'll consider four things that we find in this section that deals with the subject of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. First of all, he's the son of God concerning his son. Okay, This refers back to the end of verse 1 where it says, separated unto the gospel of God. Okay, It's a mention of the father, the gospel of God concerning his son. So this is dealing with the son of God. That's why when we deal with Jesus Christ, one of the descriptions that we find in the word of God that describes our Savior is that he's the Son of God. That's who he is in his person. Okay? He's not a human in regard to his person. Okay? He's the second person of the Trinity in regard to his person. Now he has a human nature and he has a divine nature. Two natures, but one person. That's why when we refer to Christ, we don't refer to him as, we, as, as they. Right? You don't use the plural. It's not two people. It's always one person. Well, who is the person that is acting? Who is the person that we can attribute his work to? It's the second person of the Trinity. It's the Son of God. He has the same nature as God. It's the easiest way to describe it. When you have a son, his personality may be different than you, but you give him the same nature. Right? My two boys... They have a fallen nature, and I am to blame. Okay? It doesn't take long before you see their attitudes being reflective of what I am in my heart. I'm fallen. They're fallen. They have, by, by virtue of the fact of them being my sons, they have my nature. They're human. Okay? They can't fly. Okay? Human beings can't fly. They do things that human beings do because they have a human nature. Okay? When we refer to, to Christ being the Son of God, we're dealing with the nature. His nature is divine. The person behind that nature is a God, a member of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity. That separates him from every other person that's ever been born upon the earth. He has a human nature, but the person behind that nature is divine. How do I explain that? I don't know. 
Okay, at what point, how is it that in his human nature, Jesus Christ had to grow in wisdom and stature? How, how is it possible that in his humanity, Christ had to learn the same way a, a normal human being has to learn, and yet the person behind the nature is divine? I don't understand that. Okay? This is where people get way off on things and they usually end up explaining away what the Bible says. That's how you end up in the cults, right? Jehovah's Witnesses. We, we refer to them as Jehovah's Witnesses nowadays, but historically they're known as Arians, right? They deny the deity of Christ. He's not Jehovah, okay? We're here told that he is the Son of God, which means he has the same nature as the Father, he is Jehovah. It's actually easy to show from the scriptures. And, and in order to, to show that this isn't just a term, but yet the doctrine is supported in the scripture, I want to take you to two verses just so you can see with your own eyes. And actually, it's good for you to remember these verses because you can take a Jehovah's Witness to these verses because in their Bible, for the most part, they use the King James Version. They use the authorized version with a, a few... Um, convenient alterations, let's just say, in certain verses. But for the most part, their Bible is going to be exactly the same as yours. And there are two verses that are connected, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, that shows very clearly that the one who was referred to as Jesus of Nazareth is Jehovah. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Here we have... Isaiah, in the, king, the year the king Uzziah died, uh, he says, I saw, the Lord, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Okay? The Lord of hosts. In your Bible, Lord is in all capital letters. That means Jehovah. If you were to read it in the Hebrew, you would read, Holy, holy, holy is, the, is Jehovah Sabaoth. It's actually the word that Luther uses, that Lord Sabaoth is name. That's where he gets it from. The Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth. The one that is high and lifted up here is Jehovah. And it doesn't surprise us because he's high and lifted up. He's, he's in the temple. Or some would translate that the, the kingly palace. He was in the palace. He's reigning over all. Even the seraphims had to hide their face from the one that sat upon this, this throne. And verse 5, then said, I woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, Jehovah Sabaoth. Okay? Very clear. It's Jehovah. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of John, the Gospel of John, and look in chapter 12. These two verses are essential for you to, to, to remember when you're dealing with the deity of Christ. You can actually say, as Dr. Allison used to say when they came to his door, he didn't give them the moment, one moment to, to, to spout their nonsense. He would say, if I can show you from your Bible that Jesus is Jehovah, will you leave the kingdom hall? <laughs> Very few actually agreed to that, but 
And then he says, unless you're willing to leave error, I'm not going to talk to you. If you are willing to leave error, I will talk to you. And I can show you from your own Bible that Jesus is Jehovah. And he takes them to that passage in Isaiah 6. And then in John chapter 12, look in verse 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah, that's Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah saith again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and that I should heal them. If you have a marginal Bible, you'll see the reference to that verse is Isaiah chapter 6. Look at verse 41. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. And the references to Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. Isaiah saw Christ's glory. The Lord had blinded their eyes. They couldn't believe. And it's, it's applied to the rejection of Christ in this chapter. And John says these things Isaiah saw when he saw his glory. And spake of him. He's speaking of Christ. And yet in Isaiah chapter 6 the one he's referring to is Jehovah. Christ is Jehovah. Very clear. And there's other passages that you can see the, the same thing. Bible reference of being Jehovah and it's applied to Christ. We don't have time to go through them all. But if you just remember that one, it's a, a tremendous encouragement to our own hearts. That even though we don't understand it, and that's what the, the argument of the Arian is. Okay, I can't understand it. Charles Russell actually was asked point blank why he rejected the deity of Christ. He couldn't understand it. Okay, He didn't know how to explain that Christ could be the second person of the Trinity and yet be just as much of a man as you and I have our nature apart from sin. We can't explain it. But that doesn't give you the right to explain away what the scripture says. Is there every, everything about the Lord, everything about God is going to be comprehended? I think not. I think not. Here we're, said, we're told in the book of Romans concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Right there. It's a mystery. How can he be God's son and yet made of the, of the seed of David <coughs> according to the flesh? He's both flesh and deity. I can't explain that. It's a, it's a miracle. It's a, Jesus Christ himself is a miracle. It's, it, it, the, the, the person and the natures of Christ can't be comprehended. I can't explain to you how the infinite God, the infinite Jehovah, that has always existed in the trinity of his persons, had to learn when he took human flesh. I can't explain that. But it's clear. In his human nature, Christ learned. In his human nature, Armin, our, our minister preached on this. He's going through the book of Luke. He believes that when Christ was speaking to the scribes and the leaders at the temple when he was 12, he believes that Christ was, was in himself beginning to understand the work that he had to accomplish. And he's explaining to these men and asking questions and, and trying to, to see the application of all these passages in regard to the coming Christ. That's why they were blown away. Christ had to learn what the scripture was saying concerning what he would do. 
That's why he went up to the temple during the Passover. It's very important to see that when they went up to the temple. It was during the Passover. He's seeing the Passover. He's seeing the sacrifice being slain. He's seeing the blood applied. He's understanding the prophecies concerning what Christ would do. And he's beginning to make application that this is his work. How is it that the eternal Son of God who knew from eternity that he would accomplish this work, yet when he takes human flesh he has to learn these things? I don't know. But here I'm told... That God has promised the gospel that is concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. There's no one like Jesus Christ. There's, there's never been a man that has walked the earth that is like Jesus Christ. He's unique. I learned years ago, and it's one of my pet peeves when people put another adjective in front of unique. There's no need to say very unique or most unique. Unique stands alone. Christ is unique. There's no one like him. He's deity, and yet he's humanity in the one person concerning his son. He's also referred to here as the Savior, not just the Son of God, but he's the Savior of men. Verse 3 says concerning his son, Jesus. Jesus. While the word Jesus often is accompanied by another word, either Lord Jesus or Jesus Christ, in its, in its essence, just the word itself, it means Jehovah saves. Jehovah saves. That's why the prophecy or the, the, the promise that when Christ would be born was given to Mary, thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. In, in the very name the angel was saying, Thou shalt call his name Yeshua, for he shall save his people. Yeshua means Jehovah saves. This is why you're going to call him Jesus, because he's the Savior. He's going to save his people from their sins. All the passages that you find in the Old Testament scriptures concerning Jehovah being the Savior of Israel, the Redeemer of Israel, it's Christ. It's Christ that they're referring to. Here we're told, yes, he's the son of God. He has the same nature as God, but yet his son, Jesus, he's the savior. Even his mother, Mary, who the church of Rome says was without sin in her Magnificat, says her spirit doth rejoice in God, her savior. Anyone that has been redeemed, anyone that has the vile nature that's been given to them by Adam and then added to by our own transgressions needs to come and deal with their sin. They need to come to the Savior. He's Jesus. There's no other Savior. There's no other mediator. The plan of God that, that predates creation has one Savior. His Son, Jesus he shall save his people. If you hope to be saved from your sin, you have to come to Jesus. He is the Savior. So the Savior of men. But then the one anointed to perform this work. Because it goes on to say his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The one who is anointed. It's the, it's the Greek version or the Greek equivalent to the word Messiah. The Messiah of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, it wasn't just referred to, uh, this word just wasn't used to describe Christ. 
It's actually referred to, it actually refers to others who were chosen for a specific purpose. It's actually, it, the, the word is actually applied to Cyrus in Isaiah chapter 45. I'll, I'll just read it for you. In Isaiah chapter 45, here we're dealing with an ungodly king. He wasn't even, he wasn't even a saved man. And yet in Isaiah chapter 45, years before Cyrus even came on the scene, we find a prophecy that says, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings. And it goes on and talks about all these things that Cyrus was going to do. He says, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, his Messiah, Cyrus. Now was he the Messiah in the proper sense of the term as we apply it to Christ? Obviously not then why is he referred to as Messiah? Because the word Messiah simply means anointed. My, my anointed one. And when men were anointed by the Lord in the Old Testament, it was in order to accomplish a specific purpose. David was anointed. Why? To be king. Saul was anointed to be king. These men were anointed for a specific purpose. In the, in the, the greatest demonstration of being anointed, Jesus Christ was anointed. To be the Savior. And he wasn't anointed by physical oil. He was anointed by the power of the Spirit of God. Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Christ himself said, This day is this fulfilled in your ears. Christ was anointed by the Father to accomplish the work of salvation. It's why, and, and, and I'll just throw this out there for you to consider. A lot of the miracles that Jesus Christ did, this is where things get confusing as to what part of his person you, uh, 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 that you attribute his miracles. I always just naturally assumed that when Christ performed the miraculous, that that was his deity. That that was his deity coming through. I, I'm not convinced it was. As a matter of fact, I think if you understand the, the work of Christ... Those miracles actually had to be performed by his humanity. Because as our redeemer, as our mediator, as the one who represents us, these demonstrations of power were actually by the power of the Holy Spirit. Almost every one of the miracles that Jesus Christ performed, you can actually find someone else in the scripture that performed the same thing. You ever think about that? He raised Lazarus from the dead. I can show you men who themselves were sinners that did the same thing. But how were they able to do it? Because the Spirit of God came upon them. And at the beginning of Christ's ministry, the miracles that he performed are attributed to the power of the Holy Ghost. How, how can we begin to describe the power that rested upon Christ when it says that the Spirit of God came upon him without measure? No one ever knew the power of the Holy Ghost in his ministry like Christ. So I would attribute his miracles not to his deity, but to his humanity upon which the Spirit of God came with power. Now, there, there are times where, like his transfiguration, where his deity came through. There's no doubt he's, he's divine. But I think it's a dangerous thing when you begin to, to get into the work of Christ as the, the man who had to properly keep the law of God and to merit our obedience, it's, you're beginning to go down a dangerous road when you begin to attribute aspects of his life to his deity. Because it was necessary 
that the son of David accomplishes this work. It was necessary that the seed of Abraham accomplishes this work, not the divine. The promises are that, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so I just think it's, it's dangerous when you begin to ascribe or credit the miracles that Christ is performing to his deity. It, it under, I, I think it downplays to some extent the necessity of him being filled with the Spirit, anointed with the Spirit without measure. It's never happened before. It'll never happen again. Christ's ministry was a ministry that knew the full power and authority of the Holy Ghost upon him. And many of the miracles that he did, you can see other men in the scriptures that, that did the same thing. Paul raised someone from the dead. Right? Elijah raised someone from the dead. There, there, are, there are men who did many of these, these great works. It was because of the, 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 the power of the Holy Ghost upon them. So he was the anointed to perform this great work of salvation. He's the seed of David. He's a man. When we see Christ, we're not going to some, behold some, some form of a, a, a ghost or a spirit. He took to himself the seed of David. He was, one, he was a man who was anointed to perform this work. And the commandment to keep the law and the commandment to obey the Lord was given to man. And so Christ, in his obedience, kept the law as a man. And in order to accomplish that work, the Spirit of God came upon him without measure. He was anointed. That's why we refer to him as the Christ, the anointed of God, the Christos, the Messiah, the one that God anointed with the power of the Holy Ghost to accomplish this great work of salvation. And then he's the one with all authority. At the end of the, the description concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Lord. The one with all authority. Just by virtue of him being the son of God, he has all authority. But the authority that Christ exercises now is not by virtue of his deity. It's by virtue of his successful work as the man. When he ascended to heaven in Matthew chapter 28, he says, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. That was a man speaking. Why was it given to him? Because his work was successful. He redeemed his people. And all authority has been given to him. Read Psalm 110. Jehovah said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Your footstool. What's that talking about? There's a, there, there came a time based upon the finished work that God the Father said to Christ, Jehovah said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now the seating at the right hand, I'm, sh I'm showing you the right hand, it's actually my left hand, but for your sake it's the right hand. Now that you're seated at my right hand, it's not by virtue of your deity. It's by virtue of the fact that you have accomplished this great work. This great work. And now... He's not only Jesus, he's not only Christ, but he's the Lord. That's why we refer to him as the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've noticed this, and this is just, I've never heard preaching on this, and maybe, maybe it needs to be dealt with, but I, I don't know if you've noticed this. I've noticed it, clearly. Men who are, are borderline charismatics, sometimes you find 
um, this kind of language in um, the New Evangelicals. Uh, they, they just refer to the Lord as Jesus. I don't know if you ever picked that up. Jesus help us. Jesus, th- and, and they never, or they very rarely will say Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ. But in their, in their songs, in their choruses that they have, you know, six or seven words that they sing 400 times in their choruses, it, it, they, they tend to only focus upon the name Jesus. And if you haven't picked that up, just listen, listen for it. You'll, you'll hear it. The Charismatics, they don't like to say the full name, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very rare in the epistles especially, but it's very rare in the word of God that you find the name Jesus just appearing by itself unless it's talking about that Jesus said to them because that, that was his name. But in the doctrinal sections, in Paul's epistles, in the epistles of the New Testament, it's very rare to find the name Jesus by itself. There's a reason for that. Because these other names that are given to him in the scriptures help us to understand his work. Helps us to understand the exclusive nature of his work. That only Christ could perform this work. And these people, they don't like to be exclusive. They don't like to be dogmatic. They like to smear doctrine over so that it doesn't divide. And so the Roman Catholics worship, worship Jesus. And the, the liberals worship Jesus. And if we can just use his name Jesus and leave the other names off, then it's, it's a much easier, it's much more palatable to come together. Let's not get into the fact that there was a, a work that he performed that alone is the basis of our salvation. Uh, that you can bring all kinds of people under the heading of just Jesus. People that look, at, look to him as a moral example. That want nothing to do with his atoning work. They can come together. And join up with you if you like what Jesus says here or Jesus says this. But it's not just Jesus that we worship. It's God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's how he's described here. And we can't leave off these names simply in order to cater to those that differ with us on doctrine. This is how he's described in the Word of God. He's the subject of the gospel. And when you're dealing with something so important as the gospel, we can't take shortcuts. You can't leave things off or pick and choose. It's the message that's been preached since man fell into sin. It's the message of the Old Testament. It's what Paul preached. He says it's been promised. The prophets preached it. I'm preaching it. It continues to be preached. It's the gospel of God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's how we describe the Lord. He he is the subject of the gospel. You have the sending of the gospel, the subject of the gospel... And I'll just mention this because we're actually going to deal with this in some detail in the next section. But the servants of the gospel. Christ calls his people to service. You look down in verse 5. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. Okay, By obedience to the faith, that pretty much means we're faithful to the preaching of the gospel. So Christ calls his people to service. This service is intended to spread the gospel, verse 5, for obedience to the faith. And then the spreading of the gospel will reach the whole world. It will reach the whole world. For obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. So there's the the sending of the gospel, the subject of the gospel, and the servants of the gospel. This is Paul's introduction. That's why I say Paul's introductions are not your typical introductions. 
very often he launches right out into major doctrinal statements that leave you begging for more. And that's really what he does. What does, he, what does it mean for obedience to the faith? Well, then it leads you into justification, right? It leads you to the, the basis of our salvation. And he explains, he makes these broad statements at the beginning of the book, but the entire book is the unfolding of the message of the gospel. That's why every point that we considered this morning in that outline, it has to do something, it has to do something with the gospel. Whether you're dealing with justification, union with Christ, the work of the Spirit, adoption, the heart of the gospel, the life of the gospel, the enemy of the gospel, the, the theme is the gospel. And Paul sets out right from the very beginning. This is what we preach, the, the, the gospel. It's promised for by the prophets and holy scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, made these gigantic statements. And then we actually become more detailed in, the, in those statements as we make our way through the book. Just by way of introduction, the exaltation of the message of the gospel. It's good to deal with, with current events. It's good to deal with issues that maybe are unique to every age. Uh, there are temptations and trials and struggles that are unique to every age. Every age, 50 years ago, they didn't even have an internet. Okay, now we have an internet. You know, 50 years ago, you couldn't find out something that happened in Tokyo 30 seconds later because someone just tweeted it. Okay, the, the, the nature of the issues that we deal with changes. But the basis for salvation, the, the message that needs to be preached to see sinners come and, and be, be reconciled to God has never changed. It's never changed. And that's why it's good to deal with current events, good to deal with these things, but that's not what we're called to preach. I don't care what generation you're in. 400 years ago when they rode, rode horses everywhere, or in our day today, or 100 years from now, or 200 years from now, should the Lord tarry. We, the church will still be preaching this message because it is the heart of, of what God wants us to preach. That's the message that we exalt. What is it that Paul wants us to see? It's the gospel. And we'll spend, we'll spend some considerable time going through the book of Romans to show what the gospel is and how it affects our lives. Because that's really what the book of Romans is all about. What the gospel is in doctrine and how it affects our lives in practice, application. So I trust that the Lord will bless these considerations of the introduction to the book of Romans, the exalting of the gospel. I pray that the Lord will take his word and write it upon our hearts for Jesus' sake. Let's bow in a word of prayer. <laughs> Father, we're thankful tonight that the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. It doesn't matter what society may do. It doesn't matter what inventions man may contrive. We're thankful that the need of the soul is still met in the work of Jesus Christ. We're thankful that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Father, we rejoice tonight that we have come and put our trust in the work of Jesus Christ alone as the basis of our acceptance and as the ba uh, upon the basis that we can approach Thee tonight. So Father, encourage us tonight. Help us to rejoice in Thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And help us to meditate upon Him. Revive our souls. Quicken us, Lord. Cause us to have zeal and desire to serve the risen Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.